Zach Stein, welcome to the metagame. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. Today, I want to focus on this 2019 or 2018 paper called Love in a Time Between Worlds on the metamodern return to a metaphysics of Eros. And I thought a good place to start, just jumping straight into it, is this beautiful phrase, a time between worlds. So what do you mean by that phrase and why are we in a time between worlds? Hmm. There's, there's many ways to answer this. There's like a technical sociological way to answer this, which is basically saying that, um, you know, we are between different world systems that at the level of infrastructure, at the level of governance, at the level of culture, we are leaving behind one kind of civilization and are about to enter another one, but we don't know what that one is going to be. Um, so there's a way in which this is a term that I pulled from Emmanuel Wallerstein and other people who study kind of very large scale, what are called world, world systems transformations. So there's something here just at the level of infrastructure, at the level of economics, at the level of the biosphere mm. that's demanding a new kind of civilization is birthed. Um, uh, and then there's the phenomenology of it, which is to say the experience of being unworlded or not having a world. Um, and this is also something that I'm pulling on, which is uh, not just kind of describing some sociological or economic state of affairs, but pointing to uh, an experience that's common to many people in our culture of uh feeling profoundly without a world. And what does that mean? It means we're post-historical, post-biological, um, post-postmodern. Um, so that we're not just between fundamental infrastructures and economic and political systems, but that we are between fundamental worldviews, which is to say that the dominant world philosophy, if you will, uh, is being invalidated mm. uh, and failing to make sense of our experience. Uh, and so we're waiting for a new world philosophy. Um, and so this speaks to the points being made in the paper you reference, which is fundamentally about the, uh, the need for um, a return to a worldview that positions the human in relationship to the universe differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that's the thing about the time between worlds is that, you know, when you're in a world, right, you know what the human is, you know right. what the world is, you know, what's good, you know, what's bad. <laughs> uh, when you're between worlds, you're, you're literally asking fundamental questions again about what the nature of the human is about what the nature of it means to be a person, things of that nature. So, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a long-winded answer, but, um, uh, you know, most people can feel into the experience of being between worlds. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, often what is necessary is to point out that that intuition isn't personal. You're not going crazy. <laughs> right, <laughs> the right. feeling of being unworlded. 
um, that in fact you're reflecting in your internal experience uh, very, very profound transformations happening at the level of the, the world system as a whole. Um, and so I always talk about metaphysics in a time between worlds, and I talk about education in a time between worlds, because I see those two things as related and as, and as primary um, to resolving it, um, which is to say to finding ourselves with a world again. Yeah, and just to um, add the stakes or make them a little more explicit, this clarifying what time it is and who we are in this time between worlds is not only to kind of deal with this existential angst that a lot of people are feeling, but it's necessary for the future of civilization and responding to the meta crisis. But you mentioned there that metaphysics is now become more necessary. And that's uh, what a big part of what this paper was about. So I wonder, can you very briefly for the lay person define what metaphysics is? <laughs> I know it's notoriously totally. challenging uh, to define, but yeah. It is. I mean, it's funny because most people believe metaphysics to be speculation, basically speculation about the nature of ultimate reality like mm -hmm. that metaphysics is about very abstract obscure stuff that is not present in most people's experience that requires like mathematics and logic and a whole bunch of other stuff to access right so like the formal philosophical field of metaphysics and ontology especially if you're in the anglophile world um is that way um it seems completely irrelevant and divorced from experience uh and in one sense, that's correct. Um, <clears throat> but the definition of metaphysics that I draw on in this paper, I pull from Charles Sanders Peirce. Uh, and he, he's coming very different. He's basically saying, like, metaphysics is something you actually cannot escape. It suffuses your entire experience. Um, that metaphysics is reflection and the making explicit of those things that you can't not experience mm. those things that are so ubiquitous. They're so ubiquitous, which means they're so everywhere. They're so the water that you swim in, uh, that essentially metaphysics is the fundamental reflection, uh, on your actual position, which is to say that the place you go to start doing metaphysics is right here in your body, in the context of everyday language use with other people that's actually where metaphysics investigation takes place like you don't need a fancy telescope that you send out to outer mm -hmm. space you don't need like a hydron collider that the mysteries of the universe require only your body and ordinary language and the capacity to deeply reflect on the condition for the possibility of this reality that you experience existing um so it's about uncovering the formal ontic presuppositions of everyday experience, mm -hmm. um, which means that you can't not have at least some implicit version of metaphysics, which is another way of saying you're always running some kind of unconscious story about what this is all about, mm -hmm. <laughs> how this actually works, what is valuable, what is true, what is beautiful um 
And so this is a key point in this emerging worldview of cosmoerotic humanism, which we're expressing, Mark Gaffney, Ken Wilber, and I, and others, uh, at the what is being called the Center for World Philosophy and Religion, we're expressing this uh, in order to try to allow everyday people to understand themselves as being capable of saying things that are true mm. and good and beautiful. So this is important. Metaphysics is not science. If you want to be a scientist, you have to study for many years and learn the methods and learn how to do the experiments and do that whole thing. And so there's this whole realm of truths which only experts and quote-unquote scientists can speak to. And so we've come habituated to think that actually everyday people don't have access to the truth. Right. Um, uh, but in fact, what we call uh, anthroontology, which is a kind of epistemology, a methodology, um, the fundamental claim there is that no, actually, scientific claims to truth are different in degree, but not fundamentally different in kind from mm -hmm. the claims to truth that everyday people make every day, all the time. Uh, and that we, one of the things modernity has done and which pre-modernity did also was take from people the sense that they are capable of knowing the truth with the equipment that they have, their body and their ordinary language. Right. Um, but the kind of metaphysics proposing is in fact saying, no, I, um, this is the only place <laughs> where truth claims can be redeemed, where claims to beauty and goodness can be redeemed. The only place that can take place is in ordinary language, uh, in conversation with other people, with these biological realities that are our bodies and environment. Um, so taking truth down from the hyper-scientific mathematical structural realms where it has been kind of cloistered in mm -hmm. late modernity and kind of hyper-capitalist scientific modernity and returning truth to its rightful position, which is in the human body and in the ordinary language um, of humans. Uh, uh, Charles, Charles Sanders Peirce called this, uh, what he called a critical common sensism, mm -hmm. which is to say that insofar as science leads us profoundly away from our common sense, uh, we should question that science. Uh, and it's important not to confuse that with the idea, um, uh, you know, that, uh, well, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. I was about to say yeah. more, but that's a rough view of metaphysics. Uh, and the way I use it in this paper is in that way. Um, so when I talk about the reality of love, like mm -hmm. I talk about love, Eros specifically, being as real a part of the universe as, let's say, gravity. Right. Right. That like as fundamental to the universe as time, matter, space is value and consciousness. Right. And how do we know that? Not because we can prove it with our scientific instruments, because we don't need to prove it with scientific instruments. It can be proved right here between us now speaking. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the, that's the view. The whole impetus of cosmoerotic humanism is kind of what I said is to return to a view of the universe. And actually it's not quite a return, uh, 
where co-primordial with time, space, and matter are value and consciousness. Um, yeah. So let me, uh, let me share a couple examples or, or something that might make this a little more real for a listener who might not be fully on board. Um, the thing that came to mind is how meditation and, uh, these Buddhistic practices can tell you something that is so fundamentally true about your first person experience. It's like a personal empiricism that you wouldn't get to from just a peer reviewed study or, um, MRI, uh, depictions of what happens in the brain of someone who's meditating. And there's a whole world of wisdom in that personal empiricism and that interiority that is true. It's deeply true. And it's there for an individual to sit down and discover on their own. And you don't need to outsource your conclusions about the world and about that experience to peer reviewed study, but there might be some convergence there between, you know, the Western scientific methods and what you discover sitting, uh, when you meditate. Um, the thing I want to take this next to is, uh, something that you spoke about where it's almost like there's this opening for the return to metaphysics. And it's like this vacuum that perhaps postmodernism has created and maybe one of the features or bugs of this time between worlds. Um, so what is this return to metaphysics? And maybe you can also introduce some of the, the ideas that have rushed in to fill this vacuum. <clears throat> yeah. So <clears throat> if you think about how civilizations are like what is a civilization right um we can pull from uh marvin harris's work and kind of schmachtenberger's rearticulation of that and look at infrastructure social structure and superstructure right that there's infrastructure which is like supply chains and electrical grids and farms and highways and airports and all that stuff that allows a civilization to do what it needs to do at a material level at the social structure you have governments and organizations and decision-making processes and kind of formal patterns for organizing human behavior that are codified usually in law. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have social, then you have superstructure, right? Infrastructure, social structure, superstructure, superstructure is the culture, the ideas, the values, right? Um, and all three of those need to be related and all three of those need to be coherent for the civilization not to be in kind of a downward spiral, but mm -hmm. to be coherent with itself. So what has occurred during modernity is the slow fragmentation and disappearance of the coherence of the superstructure. At the same time, the infrastructure has started to eat everything, which is to say the infrastructure is running out of control as the superstructure disappears. That's a kind of a complicated way to say that we have lost a fundamental shared story about mm. what is valuable. Right. Um, and therefore we're left with the weakest noodle, lowest common denominator story of what is valuable, which is material stuff and specifically money, mm -hmm. which is why the infrastructure runs out of control in pursuit of those things blindly not bound or guided by a 
cultural slash philosophical slash religious vision of what humans are, what is valuable. Um, so what has occurred is uh, basically the end game of what started 600 years ago when we began to disenchant the universe and place science and economics in the position where religion used to be. Mm. Uh, and the result has been that while science and economics could do a lot, while religious worldviews still had some credence and were part of socialization processes, as we truly went in the direction <laughs> of invalidating and disenchanting uh, anything other than the scientific worldview, yeah. We were left with an enormous void at the center of our culture where meaning and value used to reside. Uh, and so, um, and so, and specifically intrinsic value, not instrumental functional value, which is like this thing is valuable as a means to that end, but intrinsic value, which says this thing is an end in itself. So mm -hmm. personhood classic example of an intrinsic value. Like why are people valuable? Are people valuable because they are useful to accomplish certain ends? Like for example, I have an organization and I hire a bunch of people and these people are valuable to me because they allow me to make a profit. Or are people just valuable because they're people? As ends in themselves, they have a dignity that is inviolable, that cannot be violated uh, by any intention to instrumentalize them. So. If it's the case that we only believe what the scientists tell us and that basically we don't have free will, that we are fancy meat machines that grew out of a meaningless cosmos due to random chance occurrence and that this thing we call value, so this thing we call like the intrinsic value of a human being, is just some stuff we made up, doesn't really exist in the structure of the universe the way that, for example, gravity does. We just made it up because uh, it makes us feel good or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's not real. Uh, what is to stop us from redefining completely the value of the human as merely instrumental, right? And this is basically where we're at, that we don't have strong, coherent arguments from first principles and first values to protect human personhood from its colonization by the system and technological forces. Um, and we actually have some of the most sophisticated public intellectuals uh, openly saying that there is no free will, mm -hmm. openly saying that value is a mere social construction, uh, openly saying uh, that we are moving towards a future of the kind that uh, Skinner, B.F. Skinner, spoke about when he talked about needing to overcome, get beyond, move past the philosophies of freedom and dignity wow. <laughs> uh, that have us imagine that humans have agency and that humans are valuable in themselves. And, and in fact, what we should do instead is replace politics, and especially democratic politics, with a technocratic science of behavioral control. Right. Um, and uh, 
so this is maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but the basic idea is that, yeah, we have an enormous vacuum where our shared story of what is valuable used to be. Um, and therefore we're very confused and open to certain kinds of technological and social developments, um, which will begin to fundamentally undermine uh, what it has meant to be human for a very long time. Um, and so, you know, there's two forms of existential risk. Uh, there is the death of humanity, which is where everyone dies, which mm -hmm. is what everyone's kind of most afraid of, um, which is bad. <laughs> everyone <laughs> dies. Uh, but, but then there is the, there's the death of our humanity, yeah. which is yeah. different, which is that not everybody dies. In fact, technically speaking, biologically speaking, we are all alive, but we have been fundamentally dehumanized. Mm -hmm. Right. To say uh, that um, the things that have for most of recorded history been aspirationally characterized as what humans ought to be about, uh, that those things are fundamentally undermined and made impossible to achieve by the nature of the infrastructure and the social structure that has surrounded the human. Um, and so that's, uh, in a sense of fate worse than yeah. death, um, is a long drawn out fundamentally dehumanized, uh, species, um, that becomes something else. Um, and Huval Harari writes about this in Homodias. Um, uh, so, so yeah, if we don't solve that problem of at the level of superstructure, which is to say that if there is not an emergent new st story of value, an emergent new set of first principles and first values, an emergent new world philosophy slash world religion, uh, in the absence of that, uh, we will be left um, to the, we will be left in the hands of the techno-feudalists yeah. and transhumanists. So a, a few characters come so, to mind yeah. here. Um, you mentioned Yuval Noah Harari and uh, Homo Deus. Um, there's also, you know, much of much is made of Klaus Schwab and uh, the Great Reset, and you know, the conspiracy theory industrial complex really likes you know playing with with those fears of of a, a technocratic future. And then uh, there's Nick Land, who you mentioned in that paper, who has been promoting something known as accelerationism that is based on uh, actual metaphysical assumptions about what it means to be human. And the goal is to hasten this techno-capitalist singularity, this uh, redefinition of what it means to be human in a way that, um, I mean, my, my like short uh, interpretation of it is, uh, it's, it's almost like entropic. It's like we, we lose the things that you were referencing, the, the key values of what it means to be human. And human beings are kind of relegated to the same level as other, other objects in, in the cosmos. Um, I, you know, we can, we can talk about these negations. We can talk about what's wrong with, uh, Land's philosophy. I don't know if you have like a quick, a quick reason or a quick, um, way to, articulate what these people are deeply confused about. 
Um, but then uh, I'd love to ask you, yeah, maybe we'll start there. What are these people getting wrong? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, a lot. Because <laughs> uh, it, it, raises, it raises basic questions of what I would call like philosophical methodology, mm. right? Which is, which I already spoke to, which is where do we really go to ground and justify the claims we make about the most foundational properties of reality? Like what, where do we actually go? Um, and when we make arguments uh, and imagine futures, um, where do those visions and images come from? Um, uh, so without clarified internal states and specifically the clarification of one's own desire and value preferences, mm. um, then it becomes very hard to know to what extent the philosophies you're offering are not just defense mechanisms, right? Like, so a lot of what I hear from transhumanists and accelerationists is actually a, and I'll go psychoanalytical here. Yeah. Uh, I hear a, a desire to be relieved from responsibility mm. for one's life. This is what I hear. Uh, this is also what I hear when I talk, when I hear people tell me that there's no free will. Yes. Um, I hear is a psychological defense mechanism against the terror of actual responsibility and freedom. It's cope. Um, uh, and when I hear people like Nick Land kind of praying for a kind of strange second coming, mm -hmm. often of a kind of AI variety, which is to say an, a artificial super intelligence that comes to basically rearrange the atoms that are in our humans bodies into a more efficient universal structure. Uh, it sounds like a, like a religious wish fulfillment kind of dream. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that's often where I go. Like, uh, it's funny. And Ian McGilchrist goes here in the matter with things, right? His mm -hmm. more recent book on epistemology and ontology he makes a very interesting claim, which is that like, when you listen to the metaphysical views and philosophical views of reductive materialists and the kind of Richard Dawkins and kind of like multiverse, kind of like Nick Land transhumanist folks, you end up hearing stuff that sounds a lot like what you hear from people who are actually uh, psychotic mm. or who have severe damage to their right hemisphere. Wow. Um, so some of what these people are getting wrong, uh, is, uh, sanity. Again, common sense, critical common senseism is the basis of my metaphysics. Um, so, uh, yeah, there is a way that many of the views that I hear expressed by transhumanists and reductionists and people convincing me there's no free will and things of that nature. Uh, it's hard for me not to read as um, psychopathological uh, defense mechanisms um, against uh, reality. So 
So there's things they're, there's mistakes that they're making at the level of philosophical methodology. And then there is an absence of the psychological meaning of the views that they're actually taking. Mm -hmm. Right. So for example, you're a neuroscientist or you're Sam Harris or whatever. Uh, and you're telling me that there's no free will. Right. Uh, so my question to you would be, at what point do you explain to your child that there is no free will? Uh, which is to say, is your philosophical worldview adequate to the task of actually socializing an actual human being into mm. reality? Mm. Um, so as a philosopher of education, this is one of my litmus tests to, is this a, is this a sane or an insane philo philosophy? Right. <laughs> uh, and if you end up articulating a philosophy from the academic podium, which you actually cannot implement in the day-to-day -day decisions you make in your life, and more specifically, which you cannot implement as a way to honestly socialize children, uh, then you're stuck in what I call what is called a performative contradiction, which is to say you are espousing something in theory that you actually do not practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know at what age you tell a kid that you live in a completely meaningless universe, that you are a completely meaningless meat machine with no free will and all the things you think about your mother and the things you think about your friends and all your aspirations for the future are actually just epiphenomenal excretions of matter that have no real significance. Good luck, kid. Uh, so it's just, it's hard for me to stomach uh, some of the views that are becoming increasingly popular. And the reason that they're popular is because they function really well as psychological defense mechanisms yeah. uh, against the actual situation that people find themselves in. Um, uh, so, you know, like how do how does one, like how does someone like Sam Harris experience the subjective state of love? Right. right. Um, uh, is that how he explains it to his kid? Like, hey, kid, I'm experiencing love for you right now, but we both know that there's no such thing as love, actually. <laughs> uh, it's just nuts. It's just truly nuts. Um, and so fundamentally inadequate uh, at this point in civilization as the foundational ideas to build something new. Uh, these are the ideas that characterize uh, a civilization that is almost actively pursuing its own self-destruction uh, right. by undermining the possibilities for intergenerational transmission of uh, wisdom. So um, I, uh, I feel like Nietzsche has been lurking in the background of this conversation a little bit. And we, we had, um, Always uh, is. yeah, <laughs> there's been like a, a mini series in a way on this podcast, the last three episodes where Nietzsche came up in a very, um, explicit way a number of times. And I just want to tie in a couple themes here with what you laid out. So first, it seems like another blind spot or a psychological coping mechanism of these technocratic materialists is, you know, not only a denial of these metaphysical primitives of love, you know, these foundational uh, human um, elements of our experience, but also the body and this idea of like uploading your consciousness into the metaverse or redefining what it means to be human through gene editing and um, completely uh, creating a new speciation event with technologies in the future. 
all of it has to do to me, it seems like a, a complete denial of the body. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, um, it's uncharitable, but somebody like, uh, Yuval Harari is like a very, he, he represents like physically, like the, the physical representation of a, of a disembodied, you know, brain, you know, he's like a very skinny character who, um, doesn't seem like he spends much time lifting weights or anything like that, but that's just my, uh, maybe uncharitable take. Um, but yeah, I, I mentioned Nietzsche as well because, uh, these characters also seem like they're creating the philosophical justification for the last man. Um, you know, you mentioned that this, this cope is like coping with the demands of, of responsibility and, um, not wanting to take responsibility for life leads the mind because if, you know, bounded rationality leads the mind down these academic arguments and perspectives that you would never even teach a child. And, um, to me that, that feels continuous with Nietzsche's prediction of the last man, where, uh, increasingly you're going to have people who are opting out of life into something more like a nihilistic hedonism because the void, the abyss is so emotionally profound and such a such a terrifying thing to contend with. And so if you can't hold on to a, a religious or enchanted cosmology because of, I don't know, your rationalist education, um, and you don't actually contend with the void, you might end up in a, in a position like these materialists and, and the last man. Uh, I wonder if you have anything to say to that. And then I, I want to tie it into, to Eros. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, it's subtle, right? Because what we're not saying, let's return to the old time religion. Yeah. Like, like we're not saying like many reactive, conservative, retro romantics, mm -hmm. right? That in fact, there was some prior time in history where religion was great and we had it all figured out because we're not actually saying that. And, you know, Voltaire, right? Remember the tragedies, like the, it was bad. Like there was a reason <laughs> uh, that after the 30 years war, we wanted to separate church and state. And so, so it's not as if there was some other time uh, when things were great and we want to go back there, not what we're saying. Uh, and it's also not the case that like, there isn't a lot of crazy superstitious bullshit that happens in religion. Yeah. Totally there is. Um, uh, but what we are saying is that following the death of God, right? And this gets to that absence, right? That the center of our culture is characterized by absence, not by presence, right? Um, it's characterized by the absence of a meta narrative. It used to be that the center of culture was a meta narrative, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, now it's the case that the center of culture is the absence of meta narrative. And so this puts us in a complex position in terms of ideology and propaganda, where it used mm -hmm. to be that ideology and propaganda had to do with getting everyone to basically forcibly follow the same overarching story about what's happening. But we've shifted to a situation where now it's mostly the intentional fragmenting of story in order to kind of like divide and conquer and make manipulable in a different fundamental way. <clears throat> So now the thing we need to overcome is not some story, but it's the absence of story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And so that is a difficult position to be in because we fear, and appropriately so, returning to some situation that regresses back prior to the modern innovations where we're stuck now in some totalizing ideological story again. Uh, so we don't, we can't do that, but we also can't stay in this position where there's an absence of story that in fact, uh, that stops us from thinking the future in a coherent way. So, so it's, it's a subtle to subtle situation and much of what, uh, is inappropriate about what's occurring is not science. Science is actually amazing and great yeah. <laughs> when it's done appropriately. Um, it is the moving often unintentionally of a kind of like pastiche fragmented, deeply confusing scientific thing into that space of absence at the center of the culture. Mm. Right. Um, science does not provide us with a worldview sufficient enough to allow us to rebuild civilization. It's period, full stop, because science does not provide us with any information about values and ethics not its job. and the meaning, and the meaning of things. Yeah. Uh, which isn't to say science is worthless. Science is actually massively valuable, <laughs> hugely valuable when it is positioned within a broader, more humanistic story about what, life is for um, then we know what to use science for <laughs> then we know why to value certain products produced by science uh, if we don't have that broader story that transcends but includes science uh, then we end up in a situation where anything is valuable just by virtue of the fact science has produced it which right. is where we are now right we just unreflectively consume the exports and kind of products of the kind of techno scientific, uh, complex. So, so yeah, I think we are, uh, approaching that often prophesized end game, uh, that Nietzsche lamented, but also hastened, uh, which is, yeah, that descent into a certain kind of, uh, a certain kind of nihilism, um, which is the unstated position hidden within all of those reductive scientific materialist views. Yeah. Those are all fundamentally nihilistic views. So, um, let's introduce one of the clues for a new meta narrative that can fill that absent the absence that you described now I, I actually think this clue might also be nietzsche's blind spot this is just an intuition i have you know if you're going to accuse nietzsche of having a blind spot you better be ready but in this paper you talk about eros and uh how this is something that is completely missing in the materialist worldview you know you just mentioned how do you explain love to your to your children if you have like a the, the worldview of a Sam Harris, which actually, you know what, I don't, I don't even know if I, I know what his worldview is, but the point remains. So um, what is Eros and how is it different from sex and love, which is what most people think of when they hear the word Eros or erotic? Mm. Yeah, so Eros, E-R-O-S, right, associated with kind of Greek god, we also call Cupid. Right, so this is 
this is usually associated with what you're saying, sex, love, intimate, personal relationship. So that's the case. Uh, the erotic is associated with the sexual. Um, but there's actually a long uh, tradition of philosophical and actually kind of mystical investigations uh, that go all the way back to uh, our good friend Plato, um, but are also found in the, in the Judaic uh, and of course the Christian tradition and other places uh, where what we experience as uh, eros, right? What we experience as activation of energy, attraction, uh, towards objects and people, the desire to move closer, to form greater holes, to have more creative energy and to be like alive with the energy of life itself, um, that there were millions of years of Eros before there was human sexuality. Mm. Right, this is the claim. That Eros is a fundamental property of the universe and of evolutionary dynamics, which we participate in when we feel the energy of Eros, when we feel alivened by beauty, by profundity, by uh, other people, right? By landscapes, by ideas. Um, that we're attracted to them, that we're drawn into them, and that through that attraction, there's a merger and then there's the creation of something new. Mm. That that process of the many, the many different pieces coming together to form a new higher order whole, that that's actually a universal feature of cosmos. Right. Self-organization. Self-organization, but also the dynamics of attraction and allurement uh, and the dynamics of emergence itself. Mm. Um, and so Charles Sanders Peirce um, was one of the people who first identified this back in the 1890s. He was writing about evolutionary love uh, and fundamentally identifying forces in the nature of cosmological evolution that are completely different from natural selection or other things that are usually used to account for evolutionary change. Um, and so it's, and he was, he was, I don't know why this phone keeps ringing. Usually someone answers. That's all right. Uh, so evolutionary love <clears throat> already identified by Charles Sanders purse, evolutionary love inspires, uh, Alfred white, Nor Alfred, uh, North Whitehead. Mm -hmm. Right. So Whitehead, speaks also about the appetition of the universe, right? Whitehead speaks about the erotic movements of an ever-evolving process of reality um, is driven by these dynamics of <clears throat> emergence, of connection. Whitehead who says that the, or was it Plotinus? Someone said that the many become one mm. and are increased by one. This is the basic pattern of eros. Um, and so eros is like a superordinate value, um, which uh, creates tremendous potential for change and dynamism, like near the heart of, real of reality itself. Um, 
And so the, what we experience most intensely as sexuality, um, and again, this is in Augustine and Plato and other people, what we experience most fundamentally as sexuality, as romantic love, uh, is a finger pointing at the moon, right? Mm. Is a model, is a miniature, is a thing that we can look at that represents a macrocosmic reality. Um, that the way to cosmic love is through individual personal love. Um, uh, so that's the kind of broadest way to think about Eros. Now there are analogies in complexity science, right? So what's yeah. sometimes been called the fifth force, right? By people like Stuart Kaufman. Um, all of the work that's been done on kind of emergent property dynamics in very complex systems. Uh, a lot of that stuff, if you look at it through slightly different eyes, ends up confirming what Charles Sanders Peirce said in the 1890s, which is that we can't explain this through chance and natural selection. We have to basically posit some dynamic teleological force that is working throughout all levels of evolution, which we participate in. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, that's the basic notion of... Of Eros. And then what that means is that, um, you know, your example of like meditating on the cushion to find reality is great. Uh, but what are you doing there? You're actually seeking a certain kind of intimacy with your own experience and a certain kind of intimacy with reality that there is uh, a whole range of practices, including meditation, um, but other things uh, that allow the human to experience transpersonal love basically mm -hmm. they allow the human to experience a form of eros that is not personal that moves through and enlivens the personal but that deepens the personal into something more profound and cosmic and this is what people feel yeah exactly <laughs> when they quote fall and when they fall in love um or when they have spontaneous kundalini awakenings or mystical experiences, they feel part of a universal field of value, which can be characterized as erotic in the sense, not that it's sexual, <laughs> but in the sense that it's connective, that it's intimate, that it's enlivening, that it's alive, um, yeah. and that it is arousing, not in the sexual sense, but arousing in the ennobling kind of like deeply um, empowering and humanizing uh, these experiences uh, is what we experience. Um, and uh, that's important, you know, uh, why? And again, back to the evolutionary biology, materialism doesn't explain anything or everything. <laughs> why, why do we die for love? Why would mm -hmm. we die for love? Why, why would we do that? Um, is it group? It's like group selection, and actually, I'm secretly dying for love in order to protect my own genetic. And you know, it's like no, actually, <laughs> that's not why we die for love. Uh, we die for love because it's a fundamental value at the level of the universe itself. We die for love precisely because we're not making it up. We die mm -hmm. for love precisely because it is not a social construction. Uh, and for anyone who's been in a love relationship that has truly blossomed into a system of very complex obligations, right? Because that's the thing. It's like, 
It's a binding energy. It's a, it's a, it's a binding energy. And this is why I'm saying people want exculpating worldviews. They want worldviews that relieve them from the obligation of love. Mm. Right. Like, uh, because if you realize that, okay, uh, love is just a social construction. Okay. So therefore I'm just going to leave you and do whatever I want because all these tears and all of these emotions are some kind of strange reaction that are inappropriate. If you you're like, <clears throat> it's not the case. Like when the, the binding energy of love, um, the obligatory, the obligation that comes from true intimacy, uh, uh, these are the things that actually are the most profoundly transformative spiritual experiences people can have. Um, not by being free from the obligations of love in some transcendent space or in some deterministic material universe, being free from the obligation of your choice to love, uh, but rather being completely surrounded, trapped, if you will, by the yeah. obligations that love creates through your recognition that it's real. Um, uh, and this is often what people experience when they have kids, Exactly. <laughs> by the way, uh, is for the very first time they realize that, oh my God, uh, love is not just something that's been fed to me by Hollywood. It's not just something that is like a uh, fiction created by evolution in order to try to trick us into having sex, right? Like pheromones and all that. No, that's not what it is <laughs> this thing you're experiencing in the presence of this utterly vulnerable and beautiful creature that completely depends upon you to love it for its continued survival um you have now just been woven into the moral and ethical structure of the universe itself you have not been woven into a social construction created by humans yeah. you have been woven into the fabric of value of the universe itself and again that's a very different way of speaking and the question of, do we want to be actually obligated in that way, right? Because this is what we freed ourselves from by disenchanting the universe. We freed ourselves from a universe that actually, where our actions actually matter. And that's right? the payoff of nihilism. Um, it's, the, it's <laughs> in one sense, it's the payoff of nihilism. Like what, why would somebody uh, be motivated to do that? Because as you said, they, it frees them from the responsibilities of love. I, I want to mm -hmm. right. personalize yeah, some yeah. of what you shared there um, because I, I really want people to, who are listening to, to like feel the weight of, of what you're saying and how profound it actually is. And um, a memory popped into my head where when I was uh, in elementary school and we learned about entropy and the, mm -hmm. the heat death of the universe and how the laws of thermodynamics, Bummer. yeah, basically... <laughs> basically remove any notion of teleology or even when we learn about evolution, there's no teleology to evolution. It's, you know, random mutations that kind of like lead to what seems to be increasing complexity, but that's more like of a human construct anyway. And you've been educated into this paradigm of, of a dead disenchanted world and all these things that your first person experience of life, your most intuitive, deepest experiences of life, signal are the most important like having a child like falling in love like the decisions the the emotional states that motivate the biggest decisions of your life they get explained away they get explained as epiphenomena or 
uh, I don't know, strange like electrical signals that happen in the brain so that uh, species can procreate and, and that's it. And what you're saying instead is that, no, no, this is as fundamental as it feels. Love is a fundamental feature of the universe. Um, a quote came to mind as well, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, Buckminster Fuller said, love is metaphysical gravity. And that just seems to be a really compressed way to represent uh, what you said there. I mean, I would go so far as to say that gravity is condensed, materialized love. Mm -hmm. I right? like that. Which is to say that uh, it's not the case that the material properties of the universe are more fundamental. <laughs> They're not. And this is back to Charles Sanders Peirce, right? Who articulated, I believe, the first and still is one of the best evolutionary non-dual cosmologies, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and his view is basically that, well, you know, what we call matter is basically a very complex form of mind, mm -hmm. right? Like a hardened, habit-laden form of consciousness. And so when you think about like, what is gravity? What is it? What is it? Like you can't get behind gravity. There's not something that explains the existence of gravity. <laughs> gravity is a fundamental primitive, right? Um, <clears throat> and so, but what is it, right? It's attraction. Mm. It's movement of things towards each other, right? It's the creation out of disparate elements of intimately related orbiting complex new holes right so it's like hmm that sounds a lot like eros <laughs> yeah right uh if you don't want to just take it materially but see that actually the material is expressing something more fundamental i don't know the right way to talk about it but it is the case that matter energy gravity these are offered as if they're explanations right but they're fundamental philosophical primitives you, that you cannot get behind. Um, uh, and uh, again, like the basic dynamics that begin to occur within milliseconds after the Big Bang already show properties of eros, of harmony, uh, of uniqueness, uh, and oh, several other factors which we're identifying as universal first principles and first values of cosmic evolution, which occur from the first milliseconds all the way through to today, which keep getting deepened and now get reflexively deepened through the human participation in these forms. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's a lot to the moves that people like Peirce and Whitehead made, which was to actually flip the script a little bit uh, mm -hmm. and stop talking about choice and consciousness and love as if they emerged from matter, but rather start talking about matter as if they emerged from choice, consciousness and love. Um, uh, and then you don't have to have a, and again, this is, <laughs> there's a ton of footnotes that need to be said here to yeah. placate those people who think that I'm, talking bullshit, but there's a lot of things that can be said here about that. This is a very, uh, almost inevitable way to view things. And again, if you like, um, uh, McGilchrist's latest book, like this is his line, this is basically mm. what he's saying. 
uh, is that we really need to fundamentally rethink our metaphysical primitives um, and uh, do so specifically in a way that returns us to sanity. Um, so anyway, that was I'm not sure what question I answered there, but I just kept talking. So. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. And I think it's a, a set the stage to, to bring this uh, to a close. Um, so just on another personal note, my experience of reading this piece, which I will have in the show notes, was a very uh, profound, I would say, meaningful, like physical experience. And this is relevant because sometimes I'll read an intellectual piece and it stretches me intellectually and it's very compelling to the cerebral conceptual side of myself. But every now and then I'll read something that does that and also resonates with what feels like every other aspect of my being. And specifically in this case, when I was reading this piece, it, it resonated with deep intuitions from the part of myself that I trust the most that's also been continuous throughout my life since my childhood. So there's something so beautiful and enlivening about encountering a work of art or a piece of writing that, that does that. And this key personal experience of uh, vitality, of, of uh, where something makes you feel more alive or more excited to be human. Um, I've been using that increasingly as a signal for truth. Now, I know if you're not rigorous about that, it could lead you to all sorts of you know justifications and psychological projections and things like that. But I wanted to share that because this to me is not just a cool intellectual argument. This is a radical reframing or redeeming and re-enchantment of things that I think a lot of people already deeply know or have deep intuitions about. And so in a way, that's a, one way to express gratitude. But as a, as a closing question to you, I, I guess a, a double-barreled one. What do you personally find enlivening today? And what are you very optimistic about? Because I know there's a lot to be pessimistic about in this time between worlds. There's a lot that's at stake and there's a lot of risk. But maybe we can end on uh, an optimistic note. Totally. Um, <clears throat> well, first, as, just as a writer, um, I just like receiving, just receiving that, uh, what you said. Like that's what a writer dreams, or at least mm. writers like me <laughs> dream that they could write something that could not just change someone's mind or affect their mind, but actually get them in their body. Um, and this is kind of bringing the conversation full circle, which is that, uh, that sense you had that there's a part of me that is in touch with the truth that I trust more than most things, which has always been there, which could lead me astray. But if I clarify it is very bad, like that's yes. <laughs> right. Uh, we always move at the center for world philosophy and religion, um, from the traditions and what comes to mind is book of Job, right? In the book of Job, he says, through my body, I vision God, mm. right? Which is what I started out saying is that in fact, we don't need to be fancy cosmologists and scientists that run hydron colliders to discover reality that in fact, through our bodies and through everyday language, we have enough to know what is real, right? Different from saying we have enough to fix all the complex technological problems that we've created for ourselves. That's not true. I don't just by looking into my own interior experience, I'm not going to figure out how to stop a nuclear reactor from 
from melting down. Uh, but I will be able to clarify certain things that are in some sense more fundamental than that. Like, for example, why is it important to save the humans? Like, why not just let the nuclear reactors go? Why are the humans important? Many people are confused about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Many think people think, let the humans die, right? Screw the humans. Like, let the microbes take over. What's the difference between a microbe and a human, really? Right. Uh, whereas I'm saying that if what you're saying is true, then your reaction to someone saying, hey, microbes and humans are the same, your like, gut reaction of like, that's not true at all. <laughs> that gut reaction is accurate, more accurate than the complex idiocy uh, that attempts to get us out of any sense of being obligated to one another. Um, mm. So I'll say those things, and then I'll say what am I, what enlivens me, what am I optimistic about? Uh, so here's what's kind of interesting: if if you stop believing in love, and you don't really value certain types of fundamental human traits, you end up getting in situations where you can't form strong, coherent bonds of love and friendship, right? So, but if you do <laughs> still believe in love, then you can create unbreakable bonds mm -hmm. between individuals and levels of trust that are very, very high. And therefore, forms of coordination and organization that can actually outcompete those forms of organization that are based on mere contract and relationships of kind of mutual benefit with maximal optionality to exit if it benefits you, right? So I'm not sure if I was clear, so I'm going to say it again, mm -hmm. which is that, and this is what gives me hope, right? Which is that the people who are most confused, who are driving the world towards its end, right, uh, are actually not capable, given their worldview, <laughs> of creating organizations uh, as powerful as the organizations that could be created by this other class of people, right? This class of people who are seeking the value of love and friendship and trust as primary. Um, so uh, in a battle between devils and angels, the angels win because they can cooperate. Mm. The devils only cooperate when it's in their self-interest and always maintain the ability to exit cooperation for their own personal interest. And if they could, they would screw everybody else over to get what they wanted because there's no such thing as love or friendship and I'll pretend to be your friend to get close to you, to do yada, yada. So for as long as that is what characterizes the cultural world of uh, those people who are in power now, uh, they will lose out eventually um, to uh, the forms of organization and coherence and cooperation that can be created between, uh, let's say, a band of outrageous lovers, yeah. what we talk about at the Center for World Philosophy and Religion, right? Um, like, so for example, the prisoner's dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. The prisoner's dilemma is the most basic of all multipolar traps. Multipolar traps are the basic thing that are driving us towards extinction, 
prisoner's dilemma, right? Two guys, they've been involved in a crime. Both of those guys are arrested and they're interrogated separately. Now, the prisoner's dilemma posits that those two guys don't love each other. That's the basic presupposition of the prisoner's dilemma, is that they will seek, when they're in separate rooms being interrogated by the cops, they will seek only their own self-interest and therefore end up doing things that leads to a situation where they both get worse off than they would have been if they'd been able to cooperate. But the, but the basic hypothesis is that there's no such thing as love, right? right? What's interesting is that in empirical research where that actually occurs, right? Where two dudes who actually did a crime are arrested and interrogated separately. Uh, they don't fall into that. Why? Mm. Honor, honor and love and the fear of getting shanked in prison for being a snitch, but, right. but mostly honor and love. Right. Uh, and so that's what I'm talking about. It's like the actual way out of the social traps that create dysfunctional organizations that lead to downward spirals of civilizational collapse. The way out of that is to create true bonds of trust and love. But what does that require? It requires a shared story of value. It requires something meaningful at the center of the culture that uh, provides a kind of transcendent orienting coherence enabling reality that we all worship, right? That more important than me or you is the love that exists between us, right? Mm -hmm. That more valuable than me getting what I want uh, is staying in fidelity to the promises that I've made, right? Um, uh, the people who can say those things truly and live their lives according to those things um, uh, do have more power and more capacity. So that gives me hope uh, that um, slowly, uh, as we move through this time between worlds, uh, there will be a groundswell of remembering uh, and a groundswell of innovations in practicing and relating that will open up uh, a kind of collective intelligence and a kind of cooperative and collaborative capacity, uh, which will very rapidly change the nature of the game that's being played. Um, so that's my sense of hope. Now it's very idealistic and there's other reasons for hope. There's emerging technologies and there's conversations that are changing in high places amongst very powerful people that I'm aware of. So there's other more concrete reasons for hope, but at a very general philosophical level, um, when you are in a situation of absence of truth, absence of love, absence of trust. Um, it's very dark. It's very bad. But in that exact situation, there is a new and radical premium on those mm. qualities, right? It's like that saying that in complete darkness, a single candle is extremely fucking bright, right? So it's that same kind of notion that in a post-truth culture, truth becomes incredibly valuable, actual yeah. truth, right? In a culture of just strategic relationship and absence of trust, those places where real trust occurs become almost like little miracles, right? Uh, so there's something in the polarity here <clears throat> that suggests like a moving down into this one 
realm will actually result in a new potentiation of its opposite. Um, so the darker we get, the more nihilistic we get, the more there is this possibility that we could pop open into uh, a, a truly different perspective on things, um, uh, which would just blow the doors off of the things that were trying to be accomplished by the less adequate worldview, right? Um, at the end of the day, the truth wins. Like, mm. uh, it just does. <laughs> if you actually believe in truth, if you don't believe in truth, then that phrase is meaningless. Um, of course, your claim that there is no truth is a truth claim, but we'll put that aside. Right, right. Uh, but if you do believe in truth, love, and value, uh, you can't escape them. Uh, they will win uh, at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, that, that gives me hope. Zach, thanks so much for this conversation today. Yeah, it was good. I hope uh, it was useful to everybody. Is there anything you want to you want to plug or direct people's attention to? That paper as it explains in the paper, is a review of a book written by Mark Gaffney called Return mm -hmm. to Eros, which deals with Eros in a very, very interesting way. And then the work of cosmoerotic humanism is ongoing uh, at the Center for World Philosophy and Religion. Me and Ken Wilbur and Mark and Schmachtenberg has been involved. Uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, um, Sally Kempton, uh, and uh, Christina Kincaid. There's gonna be books coming out from that group uh, in the coming year or two. So this notion of a new story of value, of first principles and first values, of an evolving perennialism or neo-perennialism, uh, that cosmoerotic worldview uh, is being flushed out and will be uh, starting to be offered um, uh, in the coming months and, and years. Beautiful.